Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It said the president thinks the U.S. can win in Afghanistan. We'll preview what's expected from tonight's State of the Union. In China, credit scores are used to manipulate people's behavior. We'll think through China's grand experiment with social ranking. And Antarctica is changing quickly. We'll hear about the travel boom to see it now before it's too late. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. The State of the Union is tonight. You can hear it live on this radio station at 8 o'clock. We're going to preview some of the foreign policy issues that are likely to pop up with Steve Clemens, Washington editor-at-large for The Atlantic and editor of Atlantic Live. Nice to talk with you again, Steve. My pleasure, Jerome. Steve, you were just in Davos with the president, and um, he read off a teleprompter, and you wrote a little piece in The Atlantic about Donald Trump disappointing at Davos. And when we get Donald Trump on the teleprompter, it's um, it's a different guy, and there's all sorts of talk about the people who are having input into the State of the Union address. Um, maybe Stephen Miller would, would spike, spice things up with some red meat, but we are likely to get teleprompter Trump tonight. That is what we hear, and and that is how the State of the Union is set up. Of course, the State of the Union is you know, part of our annual clock, uh, the president goes in and, you know, largely is, 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 you know, usually takes credit for things that have gone well. And, and, and in Trump land, that will be the uh, passage of the tax bill and perhaps the deregulation. And, and it's a time for them to lay out what some of the other challenges will be. It's not uh, the kind of thing that um, normally tips into uh, some of the dark speeches, but we have seen other scripted speeches be very dark uh, and whatnot. But Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham, said that going on in, in, in Trump's mind is essentially a conflict between Tuesday Trump and Thursday Trump. Tuesday Trump is the happy Trump that 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 wants to portray a more congenial, uh, friendly, uh, potentially bipartisan, pragmatic um, uh, posture. And Thursday Trump is is the one that has has gotten cantankerous, uh, difficult and much more pugnacious in, in some of his strident views. And in Davos, uh, the reason I said that people were disappointed is we saw Tuesday Trump there. Folks pay a lot of money to attend Davos. And I think they were slightly disappointed that even though he had a more constructive tone, they kind of, you know, thought that that maybe they'd pay for, you know, something that had the drama of a of a good Broadway play in Switzerland. <laughs> All right. So so the people in I, I, what does that say about uh, how addicted we are to the to the Thursday Trump to the to, to the dark Trump? Well, I, I talked to Amr Musa, who's a former Egyptian foreign minister, and, and and he's a really interesting Arab leader. And and I don't know if he was there for Trump, but he told me, you know, in anticipation 
he had this great quote that I put in the piece. And he said, you know, if Trump is nice to us, we won't believe him. If he beats us up and he's mean to us, we'll revile him. But we need him to define who we are. And and I thought it was just a really great encapsulation of the fact that um, many people don't believe that that the real Donald Trump who stays on script, the Gary Cohn globalist talk on how the people at Davos, you know, move hearts and minds and have great so much potential, which is in that speech uh, that he gave in Davos. They don't believe that that's the real Donald Trump. Uh, and and they believe that the real Donald Trump is somebody that is an anti-globalist, you know, strident nationalist uh, who has very little um, time for trying to work with other countries on global causes. Now, you and I can debate which Trump is real. Maybe it's something in between. And maybe maybe it's just whoever was in the room last defines who he is. But but I think that, um, you know, Davos, for those who whether they like it or hate it, it is comprised of some rich people, some powerful NGOs and others that largely see the challenges uh, in the world as transnational ones that require collective attention. And Donald Trump doesn't seem to be that kind of leader. You know, a year into this uh, Trump administration, uh, is he the kind of leader, even though he is this um, red meat throwing guy, that still is getting hooked into issues uh, that are perpetual in U.S. foreign policy that are maybe unsolvable uh, and roped into them as any conventional politician would? Uh, The Afghanistan question seems to be, one where he is just going right down, has no original thoughts, and is going right down the traditional uh, maneuvers that we've seen several presidents do over Afghanistan now. He's uh, he's going to, in theory, get up tonight and say, we can win in Afghanistan. We've got a different strategy. Uh, we're, we're making progress. Well, the last person in the room was probably H.R. McMaster or some of the generals who do believe that. And, and as you and I have discussed Afghanistan many, many times, I think that, and we've discussed Donald Trump many times, I think Donald Trump at his core is an anti-interventionist, is somebody that doesn't see a lot of these um, deployments of people in power abroad as as really benefiting the United States. But he is a guy who doesn't like to be called a loser. He is a guy who wants to, who, who shrinks things down to binary wins and losses. Uh, and that's the problem with Afghanistan. So whoever was in the last bit of the room and, you know, sees Afghanistan as something that they can't leave. I think it's 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 a hugely flawed logic because there's no strategy beyond doubling down. The only thing I'll say is when we're talking about, you know, 13,000 troops there, we used to have 90 to 100,000 troops. So he's not up at that level yet, but we are caught in a quagmire. It's 17 years long in in Afghanistan. And you're right. He's going to present this as something where we can win. But the truth and reality is warlords have returned in, in, in Afghanistan. Uh, Western Afghanistan is strongly controlled by Iran. And you have India and Pakistan uh, that both have their own spheres of influence. And you have resurgent Taliban capacity uh, and the ability to strike into the heart of Kabul, as we just saw in this, you know, horrible, horrific uh, terrorist incident inside Kabul before. So when when I used to run the Afghanistan study group many years ago and, and was supportive of Joe Biden's more minimalist footprint in, in Afghanistan, everybody knows that U.S. forces there now, no matter what their job, are largely there to try and prevent a takeover of Kabul and a destabilization of the Ashraf Ghani government. But they don't have the ability to stabilize the rest of Afghanistan. And, and I think that will remain no matter what words come out of Donald Trump's mouth tonight. 
We're also expecting to see a um, proposal for a big increase in defense spending. Uh, and at the same time, in theory, there's going to be some an infrastructure pitch. Um, is that going to add up for uh, Congress? Uh, Congress has to has to pass the budget, uh, it, and Donald Trump's universe really always seems to make a little crazy, crazy stuff. Yeah, I mean the the defense spending, the increase in defense. Look, everybody I know, Republic. I mean, every serious Republican I know, uh, and every serious Democrat I know believes that this is not the time that we should have had massive tax cuts. This is the time to try to get back to some sort of, you know, economic balance in priorities that we have. Building up a defense budget right now, I mean, you know, I, I, I find myself, you know, sort of oddly looking at things where, you know, the, the national security strategy of the Department of Defense just came out identifying, you know, China and Russia as significant threats. And that we need to prepare in very different ways for that. And maybe that requires, you know, some increase in funding. Um, I would I would challenge that. But let's just say for a moment it did. At the same time, we have uh, in a highly controversial move where there were only five collective no votes in the Senate and the House. Our the, the president of the United States refused to implement the sanctions against Russia, which the U.S. Congress told him to do and and threatened to override him to do. And he's saying, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're already seeing a deterrent effect of the threat of sanctions. And this is this is I can't believe this isn't getting more attention. So on one hand, double down on the defense spending that we're doing. But then when it comes to Russia continuing to sort of roll over and and not take a, a, the kind of line um, dealing with Russia and sending signals to Russia about its misbehavior in the world and misbehavior in American elections. So it's, it's, I think at the end of the day, Congress can't make these things add up, but we just saw in the tax bill, they were willing to add a trillion dollars more to the U.S. Um, collective debt. So maybe they don't have to add up under Republicans now, and we don't have to worry about fiscal responsibility. I'll tell you one thing that, that I was with Gary Cohn, I've talked with him a number of times, on the infrastructure bill, they think they're going to be able to get about $200 billion for that and leverage it into a $1 trillion um, package. And I don't, I don't believe that the resources there are, are there now after this tax bill. And, and we'll see. Maybe they can invent money. You know, governments can do that. But um, I don't think that, that any uh, serious um, budget analysts would think that that's possible now, given what they've done in the tax bill. I'm talking with Steve Clemens, Washington editor-at-large for The Atlantic. We're discussing the State of the Union address that's coming up tonight at 8 o'clock. Obviously, immigration and DACA has taken a a lot of oxygen of everybody there in Washington with the government shutdown. Uh, Tonight, does Donald Trump get up and make everything better and propose, you know, DACA for the wall and this is a done when we get this behind us? You know, it certainly would make sense. You know, we're all speculating on what will be in that speech. And the, and the truth is, I don't know what will be in the speech, but he's essentially already done that by tweet. So he's essentially tied border security, which is, you know, nomenclature for the wall, uh, to a deal which includes a pathway to citizenship for the dreamers and, and those under DACA. Um, and, and I, you know, he is sometimes not consistent, but it wouldn't surprise me if that deal was explicitly offered tonight, even though that deal itself is making a lot of Republicans crazy. They can't believe that Donald Trump is offering a pathway uh, to citizenship. And this gets back to what you posed at the beginning is who's writing the speech. We all know that Stephen Miller comes is, is sort of a devout anti-immigrant adherent 
and and folk uh, a focal point of that you know w- kind of white jingoistic nationalistic um, part of the American electorate, and he's situated in the White House. He was an acolyte to Steve Bannon. Bannon has moved on, but Steve Miller is still there, and he'll have some things to say about the speech tonight. So that's what will be interesting. It's going to be interesting to see whether Tuesday Trump, nice, congenial, deal-making Trump, does put something out there like that. But then, you know, you've, you've got a lot of folks dead set against the wall. But, you know, in the end, Donald Trump gets some money towards a wall. Uh, but maybe the dreamer thing is taken off the table. Or there's Stephen Miller, the, you know, what Chris Ruddy has said, that, that group in the White House is the, are the dark angels on, on Trump's shoulder. Uh, Chris Ruddy, by the way, is the CEO of Newsmax and is known to be a very, very close friend of Donald Trump. Um, and saw Steve Bannon, Steve Miller, and a number of these other players as the one drawing Trump in the wrong direction. So we honestly don't know. That's what makes tonight interesting, is we're going to see Donald Trump kind of weighing the contending forces around him and giving the signal as to which way he's willing to go. What do you make of the pregame atmospherics? There's a number of representatives who are who say they're not coming. There are several from this area, uh, Jan Schakowsky, Bobby Rush, uh, others who are, who are not going to uh, go to the State of the Union because they object to Donald Trump. I noticed there was a, a Supreme Court Justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's not going to go. Um, is, there, is there something new about the way Washington is uh, playing the State of the Union these days? Well, some people didn't go to the inauguration either, seeing him, you know, and and, and questions about uh, his racism and what appears to be racism and some of the posture that he's taken in the past. I think in the end, these are moments and, and everyone should have their right to go or not to go to kind of express some sympathy and things. things. But to show you how short, um, what a short attention span many of us have, the biggest story in the country recently around this DACA deal was the fact that Richard Durbin and, and Lindsey Graham and, you know, people that, that Donald Trump had spoken to knew that he had said, uh, I don't know what's allowed on radio, but S whole countries, uh, re- referring to the essentially the whole um, African content continent. And that this created a dilemma, not only in terms of how Donald Trump's what appeared to be over racism and exception that Lindsey Graham had taken to Donald Trump there, but then also U.S. senators telling each other that they were lying about what happened in that meeting. People hardly remember that this happened. So some of those not going tonight are not going because they want to keep that issue alive, that they think it was so outrageous that Donald Trump would characterize other people around the world uh, who, who are, have had dark days and dark times and where the United States has always been a buffer providing relief and support uh, to those people around the world who needed it, and that many of those refugees have come in our in our past and contributed incredibly mighty ways to the United States. So I admire to some degree. I, I you know I, I understand why people that but in our news media they're, they're basically saying some people aren't showing up, but we're not attaching why they're not showing up. And I think it's important to remind people that there's been a lot of stuff that has happened, and some people just can't abide by. Donald Trump not having some consequence and having to pay some price for some of the things that he said and done. Is it in part a reflection that the State of the Union doesn't carry as much weight as it used to, that the 
institutions and the 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 traditions uh, are not as important. And this one is a really long speech. It's generally a laundry list, a cheerleading section, however you want to characterize the the response and the the people who are sitting in the audience. Uh, the, the act itself is not so interesting to people right now. I think – I'd like to say that. I'm not sure I agree because I think people are interested in these – not battles between Democrats and Republicans. And, and I know that things get framed like that, that people look at Chuck Schumer versus Donald Trump or Chuck Schumer you know, versus Mitch McConnell in the Senate. <clears throat> I think the battle that people are interested in are battles – among Republicans inside the White House, and who's getting uh, Trump's favor and who's not, and how is that affecting policy? And we don't have a lot of ways to see the manifestations of those battles, except through moments like tonight's speech. I think if Jim Fallow is my colleague, uh, national correspondent at The Atlantic, and probably um, the world's leading expert on state of the union addresses, he's written about them all, those and inaugural addresses, I think that you know, Jim would say, I think Jim would agree with me that that's, that's part of what makes this interesting. But there is a ritual that's become boring and bland to many people. I used to call it the point in the gallery sessions where, you know, someone who had a hard time or some victim of the war, or, you know, a fighter in Afghanistan or, or seen as, you know, widows uh, in the past are, are pointed to as example human manifestations of some policy objective that the president might have. And, and, and I don't know. We'll have to see how this goes. I'll, I'll tell you that we used to mock the State of the Union addresses at the New America Foundation, um, which I helped found many years ago. We had an annual conference, which when I was at New America, we would partner with the Atlantic, where I am now, in a, in a series of articles in the Atlantic, uh, and a big conference called the Real State of the Union, in which we would bring policy experts to go far deeper and far more seriously into whatever policy issues the president would be dabbling in or, or skimming over in, in that speech. So I, I wouldn't say that people are completely disinterested. They're interested in what's going on in the drama and soap opera of Donald Trump. I'm not sure they take it seriously as a policy outline. Yeah, it's more fun to watch it on social media and catch the snarky tweets. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Steve Clemens is Washington editor-at-large for The Atlantic and editor of Atlantic Live. Nice talking with you again. My pleasure, Jerome. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about credit ratings in China and how they're used to manipulate the public. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. One of the things I've read that really stuck with me recently is an article in Wired called Inside China's Vast New Experiment in Social Ranking. And the article describes the rapid development of what the Chinese government calls a social credit system. The system covers the whole society. It includes biometrics. And your credit score in China is dependent upon some things that we would not recognize as relevant to a credit score, like who you're friends with on social media or if you're playing too many video games. People who research the system call it an attempt at a softer, more invisible authoritarianism. With me is the writer of the Wired cover story, Mara Vistendahl. She is a national fellow at New America, a contributing correspondent to science. She lived in China for eight years. I talked with her previously about her book, Unnatural Selection, about the 60 million females missing from Asia's population. Nice to talk with you again, Mara. 
nice to be on the show. I don't think people really recognize what's happened in China with um, mobile payments and the whole ecosystem that their economy works in. Can you give us a little description of uh, how many, I mean, they seem to have an almost cashless society that is um, completely integrated with the government. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's um, the mobile payment market in China is now um, between five and nine trillion dollars. Um, you know, and by comparison, in the U.S., it's like around one hundred and twelve billion. Um, uh, so billion versus trillion. Uh, it, it it really people are using. Um, their phones to pay for everything in the major cities. Um, you know, a lot of people don't even take their wallet out anymore. Um, you can you can use your phone everywhere from the vegetable market um, to the little like mom and pop shops. Um, you know, in a taxi, uh, and even even beggars um, take mobile payments. <laughs> um, so it's really it's really pervasive now, and that means. A, that's a lot of data that's being collected uh, all the time. Um, I mean, if you think about it, uh, when you make a payment, not only what you bought, um, but also where where you were, um, and if you have that level of microdata over time, you can you can come up with a pretty round picture of a person. And describe the uh, payment universe. There seems to be two main competing systems. One of them is run by Alibaba. And uh, they're they're kind of tied to the government in a in a funny way. Um, right. Well, so Ant Financial is an affiliate of Alibaba. They own Alipay, which is one of the major systems. Um, they're they're no more tied to the government than any other tech company in China. Um, but there is this kind of um, strategic relationship that the government has developed with with these companies um, that 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 is worrying when it comes to data privacy. Um, the other the other major company uh, for when it for mobile payments in China is is Tencent, uh, which owns WeChat. Um, WeChat is the the really popular social network. Uh, in China, so they have a lot of social data as well. And Alipay um, dominates the payments market, um, but uh, it's really hard to come up with a um, a comparison in the West for these apps because um, they're often called super apps. Um, it's it's almost like a whole operating system in your in your phone uh, where you can do you know almost anything um, that you you know. You can combine, for example, like Facebook and Amazon and um, YouTube, uh, Uber, and all of these and services. The you can access right and the bank. Right, you can ask, access these all from within one app. I think the thing that um, we kind of, you know, when I'm reading the article, I rankle at is all the things that have to do with your credit score that uh, don't seem to go with what we normally think about as credit scores. And I mentioned at the beginning that who you're friends with on social media counts, playing too many video games counts. Um, they're, they're integrating all this data in a different way to, um, to mold society. It, it's, mm-hmm. um, it's creepy. Right. So, yeah, so in addition to this government system, which is planned to be 
um, fully unveiled by 2020. It's still under development. Um, the companies are also developing their own um, uh, credit scores that very much rely on big data. And and for that, um, the mob- all the mobile payment data that they're collecting day to day is feeding into um, scores. And and Alipay has a score that's called Jirma, Jirma Credit, which is uh, Sesame Credit. And that's sort of the system that's most developed at this point. Um, there's still a lot of speculation about what actually causes a score to go up or down. Um, we do know a bit. Uh, I mean, what we know so far um, worries me. <laughs> um, but um, but there's a lot of guesswork. And, and that's also, you know, that means that, that people can spend a lot of time um, doing things that they they think will make their score go up and, and um, or go down. And, and unlike our system, there's a pretty aggressive system of bonuses, or you get you get stuff. If your score goes up, you get a fast track visa to Luxembourg if you might want to mm-hmm. want that. Things like well, that. Yeah. So the rollout is pretty clever. Right now, it's mostly perks, um, like similar to like an airline rewards program. Um, if you have a good score in um, Germa Credit, you um, for a while, you could skip the um, the security line at the Beijing airport. You know, go to the, go straight to the front of the line. Um, you can get you can book a hotel room or get a rental car without paying a deposit. Um, so that sort of thing. Um, but I, I would expect that we will see more and more penalties as as um, both the corporate um, systems and the government system are more fully rolled out. Now you know it's uh, it sounds pretty freaky what China's doing, but um, they do get to reward people about um, things that um, are are maybe socially good. You know, if you if you're playing too many video games, you would think having people play less video games, uh, and and we could apply this to the United States uh, in you know people who are. Uh, drinking too many soda pops or, you know, drink. If you wanted to mold a population in a positive way, if you wanted to penalize people for smoking cigarettes or uh, something that was bad for their health, you could do so. Uh, there's kind of something about this that um, that is appealing a little bit. If you wanted to mold a society for the good, you could do it. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's this idea of nudging. Um, people's behavior in a in a certain direction, and and uh, I mean even in China, um, this is not an entirely nefarious um, technology. It's um, you know someone explained it to me as dual use. For many Chinese people, it's there's a benefit to go, for example, going to buy something online and knowing that the company that they're buying from is reputable, um, because social credit will rate companies as well. There is a, a bit of a crisis of trust in China where um, uh, people don't always know who to trust. There, um, there are a lot of um, examples of scams and so forth. And so it does help people understand, you know, this is, this is a business I'd like to buy from or this is somebody that I can, um, you know, I can rent an apartment from. Um, you know, similar to the way that like Airbnb has ratings in the, in the U.S., I'm talking with Mara Vistendahl. She is the author of an article in Wired called Inside China's Vast New Experiment in Social Ranking. Uh, you also talk about someone who uh, got a bad 
credit score by mistake and the things that happen to him. Uh, what happens to somebody with a bad credit score? Uh, there is this existing blacklist of people who have not paid um, their fines levied by the Supreme People's Court, um, the highest court in China. And those people are banned from travel. Um, There are plans to integrate that with the social credit system. And so that means that um, people who who don't pay their fines, you know, they, that could be triggered when they try to do something else. Um, and which effectively creates a sort of like second, you know, an underclass, um, that the blacklist has already been integrated into Jirma credit, the, the, um, the system run by Alipay. Um, and I, I did, I did speak with a man who was on the blacklist. His, his life has been made, um, very difficult. You know, he's been, his name is Liohu. He's a, he's a journalist, he he contests the case that was um, it, that was brought in the court. I mean, he says he he paid his fines. The court never received them, uh, and it was a defamation suit. So it was essentially a free speech issue. And you know he has been he's been basically housebound um, for the past six months. He can't do his work as a journalist. Um, and and as you see the social credit system, I think on. Um, unveiled more fully, that sort of story, I think, will just become more and more common. Well, what's the final, I don't know, nightmare scenario with all this? Uh, China has incredible facial recognition systems that seem to be the most advanced in the world, and they're doing an excellent job with their population catalog, cataloging their population. Can they integrate the facial recognition, the black wist, the social credit system, just so um, you could look at somebody's face with a machine and know everything about them? Things do seem to be heading in that direction. I mean, it's it, you have to keep in mind how large China is and, and, and how uh, much work it's going to take to fully integrate all of this. But there's definitely a massive amount of money being spent on, um, on facial recognition, voice recognition, um, and in areas like um, Xinjiang and northwestern China, which is a, um, a heavily um, Muslim area, there has been a lot of um, money, particularly there, spent on biometrics technologies. So I, I do think that one of the end goals for the for the government is is social control. There's a lot of money being spent on facial recognition. Um, Alipay, the uh, and, and Financial, the company I, I mentioned, um, they have this <laughs> they have this program called Smile to Pay, where you can. Um, supposedly pay with your face. Um, some of this is still, I think, at a gimmicky stage. For example, with the uh, Alipay Smile to Pay um, program, you have to enter a second identifier. Um, but I think part of this is about acclimating people to the idea of facial recognition. And, um, and also, when you have this uncertainty uh, about whether you're being watched, um, you tend to behave, right, just in case. Um, so there's, you know, Jeremy Bentham has this notion of the panopticon, the, the, the ideal prison would have um, a circle of prisoners at the outside, and then there'd be one guard in a station in the center, and the prisoners would never know if the guard is um, 
uh, watching them, but they would, they would behave with, because, because of this uncertainty. And I think that's partly what you see with social credit. You know, if you don't know what's being scored or what's when somebody's watching you, um, but there's this idea that you might be penalized for, for small behaviors, um, you, you probably would want to be on your best behavior just in case. And are they using the facial recognition to, like uh, the same way to kind of scare people? I think being used as a scare tactic in some cities with um, like with traffic violations where where somebody will jaywalk and then their um, you know face will get flashed across the screen. Um, and of course, that's not truly facial recognition at what, that point yet. What uh-huh. kind? What kind of screen? Like a billboard or something? Oh, like a um, yeah, like a big video screen. <laughs> right. So, so it's <laughs> it's like random social humiliation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a very old. That's an ancient tactic. <laughs> Just really brought up to speed with video cameras. Now, um, you have a credit score. Lots of people outside of China have a credit score. They're all caught up in this this system. A lot of people in this country invest in, in Alibaba, and uh, you can buy buy stock in it. Uh, we're all kind of um, uh, integrated in this system now. Um, yes and no. So I I did sign up for German Credit. So I signed up for a um, Sesame Credit score, as they're called. Um, uh, when I, I I went back I went back to China to visit in in August to kind of experiment with this whole um, program, see how everything was working. Um, and I still have that score, but um, right now it's fairly limited to um, payments that people are making in China, but the company does have um, huge international expansion plans. Um, you know, they, they, they recently tried to acquire MoneyGram uh, that was just blocked by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. Um, but, but the you know, they're... People told me when they when they go abroad, when they travel, they do use Alipay, um, and and so I think it is a concern that potentially you could have the Chinese government tracking people even as they're overseas. And I imagine the some of the corporations and businesses here who uh, like accumulating data look at this, look at what's happening in China, and think, well, this is. Um, almost like our goal. This would be the the ultimate <laughs> outcome of what you would have if our government and Amazon and banks all got together and said, uh, what we need to do is sit down and integrate our data. Well, actually, d- data integration is happening. There is a process called identity resolution, uh, where you can string together a, a person's behavior in different apps and kind of get a portrait of, of an American um, as it as their behavior plays out across different apps and, um, and different platforms. And, and I think there's this risk of, of looking at what's happening in China as this really um, foreign phenomenon, you know, like that could never happen in the U.S. because we have civil liberties and so forth. Um, but our data is being collected all the time. Uh, and, you know, certainly if we were to adopt mobile payments, we would, we would, on any, on any level, we would see, you know, more of that, um, behavioral history built up. Um, I think, 
I think the issue is that Americans tend to be very fearful of the government collecting our data, but less so of of um, corporations. Uh, and, and that's maybe something that we should think more about. Well, uh, it certainly made me think, and I hope people can check out your article, which is in Wired. It's called Inside China's Vast New Experiment in Social Ranking. Uh, writer Mara Vistendahl is a national fellow at New America. She's a contributing correspondent to science. Uh, thanks a lot for joining me and talking about uh, social ranking in China. Well, thank you for having me on the show. One of the most unlikely travel destinations is becoming more popular. We'll talk about travel to Antarctica after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Travel to Antarctica is becoming more popular. In fact, Condé Nast Traveler rated it number one in their list 18 best places to travel in 2018. Nina Kokadis Han is a travel-based writer who did that write-up on Antarctica for Condé Nast Traveler. Nice to meet you. Great to meet you. With us also is someone else who has traveled to Antarctica a lot, James B. McClintock. He's a professor of polar and marine biology at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, the author of Lost Antarctica, and he's helped lead travel experiences there. Thanks for joining us, James. It's a pleasure. Um, Nina, what's it like to go to Antarctica? Because uh, as a travel destination, it seems like, uh, to me, you'd be on a boat a lot. It's cold. There's lots of icebergs, and there's... Uh, no hotels or anything to do when you get off the ice, uh, off the boat. What's it like? Well, there are lots, lots of icebergs, so you're right there. But it is a totally unique experience in that if you're thinking it's like big cruise ship travel, it's not like that. Um, Antarctica is a really sensitive, fragile ecosystem, and the cruise industry that goes there is actually really sensitive to protecting it as well. And there is an organization called IATO, which is the International um, Authority of Antarctic Tour Operators. And they work with the Antarctic Treaty, and they limit the number of ships, that the, the size of the ships. So no vessel with more than 500 passengers can make a landing. Um, they have restrictions on clean ship. In, in recent years, in 2011, they um, – sorry, I think it was 2008 – they limited the type of fuel you could use. So you could only use cleaner fuels, which sent a lot of tour operators back to the drawing board to come back with more cleaner, efficient, and technologically advanced ships. So you're going there on a smaller vessel typically, and these are quieter, more advanced. The ship that I went on is called Liliriel, and I traveled with Abercrombie and Kent. And they take this beautiful platform that has stabilizers. So these shoot out from under the boat like airplane wings, and they counteract and help to balance out the waves because transiting there, you spend two days crossing the Drake Passage, and that's kind of um, has a reputation for stormy seas. So you have this amazing uh, journey to get there. Um, but once you're there, it it really is like no other place I've been in that 
this is the only place, the only continent in the world that has no permanent human population. Yeah. So from a cultural aspect, it's fascinating before you even get to the wildlife part. <laughs> I mean, you're, the Antarctic Treaty was formed in 1961 by 12 powers, and they came to, together to sort of set aside their territorial claims and agree to make this a continent for peace and science. And so from there, all you're going to find are the scientific stations. So it's very unique to be somewhere that's so, like, inhospitable and wild. Uh, James, you have been doing research there in Antarctica for decades, and um, I imagine a lot of people are coming because it's changing so rapidly now with climate change. Can you describe what's happened between then and now? Yeah, um, I've been working in Antarctica for 30 years, um, and most recently the last 16 at Palmer Station on the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, I can tell you that the glacier behind Palmer Station, the Mar Glacier, uh, when I first showed up at the station 16 years ago, it was a big deal when it when it crashed. You know, a big chunk fell off. It's called calving. We'd all run down the hall and open the door and, and watch the waves come down the bay. You know, I was here uh, at Palmer Station this past year, and, and this was happening, you know, several times a day. Uh, you didn't get up and run down the hall anymore. The, the island uh, of Torgerson, uh just in front of the station, home to uh, a large colony colony of Adelie penguins uh, has been followed over the last 45 years and now the populations which numbered in the you know the tens of thousands are, are down to about nine you know 90% of them are gone so only about 10% are left and largely due to a warming environment where you have more humidity in the air later snowfall burying the eggs and causing mortality of the chicks the sea ice that provides a refuge and food for krill is disappearing at a very rapid rate. Um, you, you turned on your your news the other day and learned about the largest iceberg that has ever been recorded breaking off of the, the east side of the Antarctic Peninsula, the Larsen Sea. Um, these things are all things that are happening with, with warming, uh, and they're connected to us here at home through sea level rise and through some of the work that I do uh, in chemical ecology where we're seeing crabs that are you know, surrounding Antarctica for millions of years potentially moving up into the shallow seas of Antarctica where the marine life has no protection against such crushing predators and it could ravage uh, these, these seafloor communities and threaten things like drugs that we've studied uh, and found in these marine organisms in Antarctica that are active against cancer and, and different kinds of other human disease. So there's well, lots of things happening. Yeah. When you take people on this trip, James, it sounds like a bummer tour of, of wildlife and degrading environment. No, it's ah. no bummer tour. <laughs> it's not a bummer no, tour. It's, no. the, it's the trip of a lifetime, really. Yeah, um, I mean, just speaking to what, you know, James takes, he works at Palmer Station, and so we were able to join him as guests, which is pretty rare to be able to visit this Palmer Station. And I know, James, you've referred to it as the Shangri-La of scientific research stations in Antarctica. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what we saw, I mean, we knew it, we'd heard the story about the Mar Glacier, but what was amazing for me to see, on the day we went, it was beautiful and sunny and blue sky, so you can feel, it was comfortable for us to walk around, but you actually felt the warming. You felt like the temperatures were pretty comfortable, which felt really strange. And to see, 
they pointed out this large kind of swath of surrounding islands and lands that had once been covered by the Mar Glacier, which now has receded, and they didn't even realize there was an island below it. So it completely has changed, like the not the topography that was always there, but the way that it looked, and we got to witness that, which was really interesting. I mean, and another time... Just from the more beautiful, like what you would hope for, a, a wish dream day in Antarctica, we had gone um, to Coverville Island, and it was surrounded by these like marshmallowy giant icebergs, and it was again blue skies. There were penguins porpoising in the water, and whoever gets to see that, like you, you every day you see that, it never stops being jaw dropping. And don't forget the twenty five killer whales. Oh yeah, I, w- I was getting there. That was the, that okay. was that was the day of days. And that evening after dinner, we got called out to the decks by our bi- marine biology lecturer because 25-plus orcas had been spotted outside, and they were combing the, the waves, these very, like, placid waters around the boat. This is all backed by a, like, peach-colored sunset that's hitting these giant rocky mountains that almost look black and are covered with snow that looks like sherbet in this light. It was like you couldn't, couldn't design a better day. We all went to bed that night feeling like we had, we had seen it all. James, what is the best outcome as for you if you're leading these tours and trying to get people more up to speed on what's going on in Antarctica and, and they go home? What, is the, what would the best outcome be? Yeah, let me just back up and say that I started doing these cruises 11 years ago with some trepidation as an Antarctic scientist. I wasn't sure about tourism in Antarctica, to be honest, but I was quickly turned around. Uh, the companies are very sensitive to teaching uh, environmental stewardship. The, the the guests that come on these cruises to Antarctica are literally changed. It changes them. They come home ambassadors to Antarctica, lifetime ambassadors, um, and they've learned about what's happening with climate. They talk. These are people that are well-connected in, in many ways to the political spectrum. They know their congressmen. They know their senators. They come back. They, they're concerned citizens about climate. They've visited a, an Antarctic station and seen their tax dollars at work and the tremendous science that's going on in Antarctica. So I think these are all are big benefits uh, to have people become ambassadors such an amazing place. Uh, there seems to be more concern about uh, the carbon footprint of travel these days. And I had a climate scientist on, Peter Kalmus, and he has decided not to fly in airplanes anymore. And he's trying to get other climate scientists not to fly in airplanes anymore, specifically to conferences and things like that. Um, is there, um, you know, if you're going to live your values and you're worried about climate change, would you not travel to Antarctica? Well, I, I think like from a Thinking about it in the scope of travel and the fact that I write about it, travel and also consider myself to be an environmental activist, there really isn't a destination that I can think of where the industries that visit it are so sensitive to the environment as well. Like the cruise industry is, like they had that ban on the heavy fuels. And so these ships that are now going are much more efficient. Like the one that we were on, the Liriel, is like. 40% more efficient because it uses electric pro- propulsion and they have special anchoring systems so their dynamic positioning is not anchoring them in these fragile ecosystems. So there are some measures that the cruise industry there, IATO, is helping operators to take. But 
as a traveler, um, Jacques Cousteau said that people protect what they love. So if you visit a place, you're naturally going to be invested in it and have a sense of ownership over it. But beyond that, for Antarctica, I almost, and I know Jim and I share the sentiment about travel having, that, that it could possibly be a means to helping to combat climate change. And I say that because, like, we have the privilege to go to such an incredible place. So what would you do with that privilege? What responsibility will you take home with you? What will you do when you go home to change things? And I've already started thinking about the ways that I can do that. You know, for me, working in the, the field that I work in, I have a platform to share stories. But other people can share stories. They can go to their children's schools. They can go to the Rotary Clubs. They can go to their libraries. Um, there are ways, as Jim was sharing, about voting and contacting your elected officials. But you can talk about the carbon, uh, the carbon footprint, which is real. But you can also think about this sort of evergreen impact that Antarctica has on a person to come back a champion. So I have this spiritual, emotional, cerebral um, experience there that lives with me forever and that lets me come home and share those stories and, and be a champion for this place. Um, James McClintock, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I think the only thing I would add, we had a wonderful conversation with the 200 guests on the ship the other day about things that, that they could do uh, to make a difference when they returned home from this amazing expedition to Antarctica. And One of the things that came, came up that I hadn't thought about before from one of the guests was investment strategies um, in terms of investing in companies that have low carbon footprints. Uh, and so the discussion, you know, transcended just politics and got also into ways that you can financially make a difference with climate change. So I think these are all very positive things. I, I don't think that you can deny that there's some carbon footprint from taking these trips. And, uh, you know, maybe down the road, there'll be carbon credits that you can purchase to offset this kind of thing. But I think personally, as a scientist who's wit been witness to this cruise industry and its benefits, and as a, someone who travels extensively lecturing on climate change and trying to get people to become active uh, to do something about perhaps the most pressing issue we all face, I think that those benefits outweigh um, the issue of carbon. That being said, I'm very careful uh, about where I go to a meeting and uh, what kind of a car I drive. So I try to be like Nina, uh, a strong environmentalist. But in this case, right. I think there are uh, viable benefits. James McClintock is a professor of polar and marine biology at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and he's the author of Lost Antarctica. He helps lead travel experiences there. And Nina Kokodas is a Chicago-based travel writer who wrote up Antarctica for Condé Nast Traveler and helped it make number one on their list of 18 best places to travel in 2018. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for nice having me. Nice to meet you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we will not be here. The governor of the state will be doing his State of the State address, and we'll be back on Thursday, and uh, we'll discuss polar ice caps. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.